Hello, friends. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on Sirius XM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a great lineup for you today. We have Father Roger Landry, who's going to tell us about this piece that he wrote for the National Catholic Register, a very beautiful piece about kneeling in today's atmosphere of unrest, but this time kneeling on both knees. And we have the evangelist, Alvida King. Dr. Alvida King is the director of civil rights for the unborn. She's also the niece of the one and only Martin Luther King Jr. to talk to us about what's going on in these times of race, protests, and and riots. First, however, we've had breaking news from the Supreme Court this week, disturbing breaking news, essentially redefining the term sex to include things like gender ideology and sexual orientation. I've asked my colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire, who is an expert on these matters, to join me as we now introduce Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Welcome, Ryan Anderson, to Conversations with Consequences. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, we asked you to come on because uh, something very big happened this week at the Supreme Court, and it's a complicated topic, and we thought that you'd be the perfect person to explain it to all of us, and then we can talk about what's coming down the pike after that. Great. Yeah, happy to do so. On Monday, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled on a big Title VII case. Uh, Title VII is um, the section of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that says no discrimination on the basis of sex in employment. And the Supreme Court said that that word sex, when you apply it in the way that Justice Gorsuch applied it, it reaches into sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, And so what we're at stake here were plaintiffs who said that they were fired from their jobs either because they were gay or because they were transgender. Gorsuch says that those sorts of employment decisions are instances of discrimination on the basis of sex. In one of these cases, it was a male employee who was identifying as a woman. He had showed up as dressed as a man for six years at a funeral home wearing a suit and tie. He told his employer, two weeks from now, I'm going to come back wearing a dress. And the employer said, this isn't going to work out. We're going to have grieving families. And you're a 60-year-old man who two weeks from now is going to be wearing a dress, interacting with grieving families. This isn't going to work. And Gorsuch says that's discrimination on the basis of sex. Ryan, I think so many people are focused on the implications of this for people who identify as homosexual or transgender. But as you and I have both written extensively about what this means for the legal status of women. And so how do you see this affecting legal status of women as well as what are the implications, the religious liberty implications? Yeah, great question. Because so for right now, this is only being applied to Title VII. But if I'm a lefty lawyer, I'm filing a lawsuit today to say, wait, why doesn't the same theory of sex discrimination apply to Title IX? That's the federal law that says no discrimination on the basis of sex in education. And so if a man who wears a dress needs to be treated as a woman, according to Justice Gorsuch in Title VII, then a boy who identifies as a girl at school will need to be treated as a girl. And we know what this means for bathrooms, for locker rooms, for athletic competitions. It means that the legal identity of of a woman more or less gets erased into a self-declared identity, right? So it's not an ontological reality that you are a woman. But if I identify as a woman, I now am a woman in the eyes of the law. That's the takeaway from this this court ruling. What's interesting reading the court ruling, and I did it as as a person who doesn't really understand legalese, but I wanted to get as close as possible to it, is that Justice Gorsuch basically redefines sex, as you mentioned. What does that actually mean? Because all of us understand, I just even looked up on Merriam-Webster the definition of sex, And it's very clear that sex is that 
people are either males or females, any, like any other mammal, and he has somehow redefined it. How is it possible that he can do that, and how do regular Americans who don't speak legalese get their minds wrapped around that? Yeah, so it's really, he, he, he's, he's too clever by half. If you read the opinion, um, you can tell that Gorsuch thinks he's really, really smart, uh, and there's almost like a smug quality to the rhetoric. And then Alito, who's writing the dissenting opinion, it's very obvious that Justice Alito got really upset, right? Because Alito's more or less defending the truth. He's defending reality. And he's like, I can't believe that one of my fellow conservative justices is, you know, this, this mistaken and being so obnoxious about it. But what he wants to say is, I'm not redefining sex. Uh, what I'm doing is saying that it um, that sex discrimination extends to orientation and gender identity, because the only reason why you would think that a man who identifies as a woman, um, why you would treat that person differently than a woman who identifies as a woman is because of their sex, right? So mm -hmm. it's almost like a simplistic form of logic, which denies that there are differences between men and women, differences that make a difference. Uh, historically, we said sex discrimination didn't mean you can't have any standards, but you can't have double standards. You have to treat boys and girls equally. You have to treat men and women equally. But equality didn't mean sameness. So, Ryan, for instance, if you have a uniform um, in, a, in a job or in a school, boys and girls or men and women both have uniforms. So you treat them equally. But the men's uniforms and the women's uniforms can be different because their sexes are different. Is that, is that what, what you're trying to what you're explaining? Yes, you know, exactly. I mean, historically, we would have said boys and girls can have different sports teams, but they have to be equal. You can't kind of have like top notch athletic equipment for the boys basketball team, but a bunch of like deflated basketballs and, you know, terrible uniforms for the girls team. <laughs> you need to have good uniforms, good equipment for both teams, but you don't need to have co-ed teams. Right? You don't need to treat boys and girls as, inter as interchangeable. Uh, and so equality didn't mean sameness. Gorsuch's logic here really says that more or less any time when the treatment would have been different had the person's sex been different, discrimination has taken place. And, and, and that's just well, a faulty account of discrimination. Right. And, you know, as a woman, I think the thing that most concerns me about all of this is that I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that now women, I mean, can we even make claims on the basis of sex? I mean, it's kind of the great irony of, you know, liberals having raised up Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who popularized that expression and sort of pulls the rug out from underneath women in terms of making legal claims about discrimination on the basis of actual biological sex. Yeah, it's really Ginsburg. Um, if you look at the opinions she has written in the past on sex discrimination, uh, she always says there need to be double standards. There needs to be some disadvantage that applies to women that doesn't apply to men or that applies to men and not to women. Gorsuch wrote the opinion here, not Ginsburg. Ginsburg didn't file a concurring opinion. Ginsburg didn't write her own opinion. She signed on to this and never does Gorsuch acknowledge or Ginsburg acknowledge that this opinion is at odds with her previous opinions. Uh, and it's largely because of their legislating from the bench. And what did they want in the month of June? They wanted a win during Pride Month on LGBT issues. Um, oh, wow. I hadn't thought of that, <laughs> that connection there, Ryan. Ryan, I think women's sports is something that Americans can understand how this has sweeping implications. What are some other areas that are sort of understandable, concrete changes that, you know, we might see or that Americans can understand who are just sort of confused and baffled by what this ruling means? Sure. So on Friday, so this ruling comes out on Monday, just three days prior, Friday, the Department of Health and Human Services had finalized an important regulation uh, in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, so Obamacare, undoing a bad Obama-era regulation where the Obama administration had said that sex equals gender identity and all healthcare plans would have to pay for sex reassignment procedures and all relevant physicians would have to perform them. And so thankfully the Trump people say, no, this is misguided. Well, the logic of the ruling from the Supreme Court would say, you're gonna have to do that again because otherwise it's sex discrimination. And, and here's the, the simplistic logic. If you pay for double mastectomies on your company's health insurance plan for women with breast cancer, but you don't pay for double mastectomies for women who want to identify as men, 
you're discriminating on the basis of sex. If you perform double mastectomies at a Catholic hospital for women with breast cancer, but you don't perform them for women who won't identify as men, you're discriminating on the basis of sex. Right? That, that's what we're going to be seeing uh, as some of the, the next round of legal challenges. We're going to see it in schools with bathrooms, locker rooms, and sports, and we're going to see it in the healthcare context. Ryan, that example that you give to me, is it, there's a very easy answer to it as a physician. The answer is we perform mastectomies on diseased breasts that must be removed or else the patient will die of cancer. We don't do mastectomies on anybody who simply wants to remove a body organ. And that is equal for men and women. Now, wouldn't that just be a natural uh, solution to the problem? And why doesn't that ring true to the other side? If we lived in a reasonable universe, yes. Okay. <laughs> that strikes me as entirely accurate. Um, but you know as well as I do what the liberal doctors say. Uh, the liberals doctors say that this is life-saving medical care, right? A certain type of progressive LGBT activist says that for this patient, uh, those breast tissues are diseased because this patient um, is actually a man. And so the breast tissue is causing this patient to be so uncomfortable in his body that the appropriate medical solution is to remove um, uh, this tissue. And so what we really have here is a disagreement about medicine, not discrimination on the basis of you know, someone's sex. And, and so we shouldn't use civil rights law to treat disagreements about medicine as if it's a civil rights violation. And Ryan, that goes to the issue that I think uh, has come up is that the court is legislating and these are issues that should be taken care of at the legislative uh, level, at the medical level, <laughs> at the science level. And I wish we had more lawyers like you, more people like you, more people who think that like you on the other side and making common sense decisions. So thank you very much for joining us. Ryan Anderson and, and helping us help walking us through this very difficult and strange decision from SCOTUS. Yeah, thank you. And now I'd like to welcome evangelist Dr. Alvida King. She is director of Civil Rights for the Unborn at Priests for Life to Conversations with Consequences. Alvida King, welcome to the show. Alvida, I wanted to ask, uh, first of all, if you could give us your initial thoughts on um, on the tragedy of George Floyd. All of us have seen the video by now. And also the tragedy of the racial unrest and um, protests which have turned into riots and have caused so much damage to poor and minority neighborhoods especially. In the midst of the rioting, the killing, the the problems that we are having, you know, COVID-19, people says, well, do I put on a mask and get scared? Do I take off the mask and protest? What do I do? I say call Jesus because Jesus is the only one with the answers. That's so true, Alvida, and, and and it's interesting that you bring up the, the COVID-19. Many of us are suffering, maybe all of us are suffering from a lot of angst and, and worry, anxiety, some of us more than others, just from the future, what, the, what does the future hold economically and to our health? Do you think a lot of the protests may be in some part also responding to all that fear in people's hearts? The protests, the COVID issues, and many of our normal everyday stressors, family, economy, health, all are in play right now. And this is why our faith is so important. The love of God is so important. The delicate hope that blossoms in our heart is so important. And so that's when COVID hits. Are we gonna be afraid? Are we going to have faith? Because faith is stronger than fear. With the riots and the violence, are we going to stop and think and hear each other? Are we going to fight over skin color? Are we going to play that we don't see it? You know, some people, I'm colorblind. I don't see skin color. God created beautiful skin colors. We see skin color. We're supposed to celebrate that. We are one blood, Acts 17, 26. So when all of these riots come up with ethnic differences, economic differences, we try to do a social gospel, letting the government answer it. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are one blood. God wants us healed and healthy. So we have to have faith. We have to have hope. 
and we have to have love. We have to value the human personality. Martin Luther King Jr., my uncle once said, when we learn to value the human personality, we won't kill anybody. So we can stop killing each other and we can begin to heal together in America and around the world. I'm so glad you bring up your uncle because one of the things that I've been doing as I'm experiencing all this all this angst in our country over over race, I've been rereading some of your uncle's work. He was truly a prophet of of love, yes, a prophet, absolutely, absolutely, a prophet of of humanity, and, and as you say, of expressing that truth that has to guide all of our actions when we whenever we encounter another human being, which is that we are brothers and sisters. We are all children yes, of God. Yes. And he does it so beautifully. He wrote a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, which has especially impacted me. And what he says in that is that love alone conquers hate. Yes. And, you know, I have a book now, The Spirit of a Dream. It's at alvedaking.com. I talk about the dream and the vision of my uncle. I talk about my father, his brother, Reverend A.D. King, their dad, Martin Luther King Sr., my granddaddy, who saved me from abortion. In 1950, my mom had conceived me, and Daddy King says, no, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm here today and rescued by that same vision that I'm talking to you about, that same understanding of faith, hope, and love. We can learn to live together as brothers and sisters and not perish together as fools. Martin Luther King Jr. said we have to do that. I agree, and we can do it, Gracie. Mm -hmm. I know we can. I know we can, and and it seems to me that's the only way out because he yes, also, yes. your uncle also says in this sermon that the 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 history is littered with the communities, old communities that have destroyed each other in the name of hate and in the name of dissension, and that only love can bring us into that peacefulness mm -hmm. which we need to flourish as human beings. Only love can conquer hate. I agree with that. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light and love can do that and you, only love can conquer hate Alvita, you're at the Priest for Life you are their civil rights director um, of, yes, of that organization yes. which is a wonderful organization and in Priest for Life it's very important for Priest for Life to communicate the message and you do it so well that children are, are blessings from God and that it's there's never any outside circumstance which should which should influence mothers and fathers to reject their children as they come from God. How do you see that as a civil rights element? What's the civil rights element in that? Actually, civil rights for the unborn.org is where you can find me. We talk about family, we talk about faith, we talk about the sanctity of life, the principles of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the prophet, are there for nonviolence. There's so much there. Civil rights for the unborn.org. And so life from the womb to the tomb, you hear me say that all the time. Mm -hmm. All human life, all human personalities are important. They matter. And so when we hear black lives matter, of course, black lives matter. All lives matter. And so we have to have a sensitivity where we're not fighting, but regarding and loving each other as human beings. And you think that that very much be, starts in the in the womb? Civil rights begin in the womb. Women's rights begin in the womb. Human rights begin in the womb. We have a whole in the womb series and a whole in the womb talk that we do. So absolutely. What would your uncle have said? I'm sure he would have been very sad about the high rates of abortion in the African-American community. What, what, what do you think he would attribute that? My uncle Martin Luther King Jr. once said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Martin Luther King Jr., with the science, the religion, the philosophy, all the technology that we have, would see that little baby in the womb and say the same thing that I say. A woman has a right to choose what she does with her body. The baby is not her body. Where is the lawyer for the baby? <laughs> he would ask, how can the dream survive if we murder our children? Oh, that's so beautiful, Alvida. I'm a radiologist and I do uh, fetal ultrasound. 
and it's always in black and white. All the babies look. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. All the babies. They look the same. They and look in the, the same. beautiful 4D, you can see more of their personality, but still, you just see a human baby. It's and when true. we see color, never say I'm colorblind because you need glasses. Jesus gives sight to the blind. We can see, but we celebrate God's creation. We see and celebrate. Alvita, do you think that the way uh, that our country has uh, become so comfortable with abortion in general, not us, of course, but a large part of the country has become so <laughs> yeah. comfortable with abortion and the ending of so many millions of lives as almost a natural uh, byproduct of our sexual liberation? Do you think that that has a hand in this disorder and, and this, this rage that we see in our country? Do you think this is a consequence, this this? this lack of love and understanding between Americans? The devaluing of human life is at the heart of many of America's problems. And that's why I'm so grateful, even for President Trump. He cares about sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb. For all Americans, he says we all bleed the same. Mm -hmm. As we stop caring about each other as human beings, when we don't see the human personality that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, that's how we begin to not care and to commit crimes against humanity. Martin Luther King Jr. called that uh, man's inhumanity to man. Mm -hmm. So I believe that one of the solutions in America, the main solution is return to God, period. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we'll begin to regard each other as brothers and sisters. It seems to me that uh, your uncle was very good about explaining that when you read the Bible, when you return to God, when you read the Gospels, you're presented with a brand new and, and very countercultural way of approaching hate and approaching injustice, and that is to turn the other cheek. Do you think that your uncle now today in 2020 would continue to suggest the same avenue out of this situation we find ourselves in? Interestingly enough, for a short season, people were using half of a Martin Luther King Jr. quote. Riots are the voice of the unheard. They cut off the rest of the sentence because in the same speech, he many times said, I am going to be nonviolence because that is where we will succeed. So Martin Luther King Jr. never supported violence. He supported nonviolence. He was a prophet, a man of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. He embraced the model of Gandhi out of India as far as the principles of nonviolence. And so by following the gospel of Jesus Christ with the model of nonviolence, Martin Luther King Jr. was successful. And that's why we remember today we have to remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need, desire, and want, which were named before that verse, will be added to you. Mm -hmm. I believe today Martin Luther King Jr. would continue to say, seek God, love God, trust God, obey God, and righteousness and justice must come together. That's why you'll hear me say, no peace, no justice. Or K-N-O-W, peace, K-N-O-W, justice. In order to have God's justice, we have to do it God's way. Well, Alvida, I'm very sorry your uncle is not still among us to say those words, but I'm glad that you are with us and, and showing us that light that, that he would have shown to us. Where can people, where can our listeners go to uh, hear more and read more about your message, Alvida? Thank you, Gracie. Civil Rights for the Unborn.org. AlvidaKing.com. Thank you, Alvida. Thank you. God bless you, Gracie. And in these difficult days of dissension and unrest in our country, we would like to play for you some words from the prophet of hope and nonviolence and reconciliation, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Let's listen to his words. So I want to turn your attention to this subject, loving your enemy. It's so basic to me because it is a part of my basic 
philosophical and theological orientation, the whole idea of love, the whole philosophy of love. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel as recorded by St. Matthew, we read these very arresting words flowing from the lips of our Lord and Master. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Certainly these are great words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. The Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is the word agape. Agape is more than eros. Agape is more than philia. Agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. And this is what Jesus means, I think, in this very passage when he says, love your enemy. And it's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus said, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive goodwill for all men so that you love everybody because God loves them. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. Now joining us is Father Roger Landry, who's not an old friend, but he's a constant friend. He gives us our beautiful sermons that we have every single week to prepare us for the Sunday's Gospel. Father Landry is a priest of the Fall River Diocese in Massachusetts, and currently he presides in New York, where many of the protests and riots took place in the wake of the brutal slaying of George Floyd last month. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Father, as a guest this time instead of our wonderful homilist of the week. It's great to be with you and have a dialogue and uh, likewise with your listeners. Oh, thank you, Father. Yes, of course, we couldn't do without your homily. So, <laughs> so Father, we wanted to have you on because you live in New York City and you've been uh, experiencing these very un uh, disquieting uh, events that are being felt all over the country. And also because you wrote really a lovely piece, a beautiful piece called Protesting on Both Knees for the National Catholic Register, which to me, and I've been reading nonstop about all of this, is one of the best pieces that I've read, putting it all together for us as Catholics. Thanks. Yeah, the title of the piece came from an episode I had on one of the mornings walking back from Mass with the Statistics of Life here in New York. I was going through one of these pedestrian tunnels built at a construction site, and on the other side of the tunnel, there was an African-American construction worker with a mascot who said quite loudly as there was about halfway down the tunnel, Father, you're going out to protest. And so because of his mask on and because I didn't know him, I couldn't really tell if the tone which sounded friendly was actually friendly or I was being put up for something or anything else so I put on my diplomat's hat and I said are you are you a Christian um, to be able to put a little context to what I was thinking about responding and he said with some pride yes I am I said well you know as Christians we protest on both knees and he looked at me not quite understanding exactly what I said and described like our first reaction to any thing as Christians is that we go before God. And I said, we have to go before God and pray for an end to evil and racism. Pray in reparation for the terrible murder, essentially, of George Floyd. Pray 
made to stop the evil violence that's destroying our city and making all these stores have to board themselves up for self-protection, etc. Our first reaction is always to drop to both needs in prayer. And mm-hmm. the, the construction worker looked at me, he paused, and then with his mask-covered chin, nodded affirmatively up and down. And so taking advantage of the opportunity, I said, so do you want to march with me? And he looked and he laughed and he said, Father, I have to work. I said, well, then I will go march for us both. And, um, you know, and as I was walking away from him, thinking a little bit about the episode, I said what the Holy Spirit had inspired me to say, that as Catholics, we protest on both knees, um, that that was exactly the fully Catholic response to the multiple issues that are at play during this time of crisis in our country. That like with anything, as a Catholic, we always begin with God. We begin with him in the good times to thank him because it's not all our own effort and success. But we also pray in the times of crisis for his mercy and his strength so that we might be able to be salt, light, weapon and a real participant in the solution of what ails our, our national health. What I like about your, about your piece, I like many things, but one thing I like is that you bring all the different facets of a very complicated situation into a view and and how we need to address all those separate things but again always the same way presenting ourselves before God and, and asking that we be part of the solution that we confront each issue even though the issues are so complicated we can't isolate just individual parts of this mm-hmm. you know we, we have to look at the history of racism in our country it's it's ugly it's something that we should not be proud of as a country that in our constitution we discriminated against African Americans and didn't even consider their whole dignity. We have to be horrified by the history of racism, the Dred Scott decision, the Jim Crow laws, Mm -hmm. the forced busing situation in order to make sure that blacks got an education to what Rosa Parks had to go through, through the lynchings in the South. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are things that should make us as Americans and as Catholics sick to our national stomach, and we have to fix it. And, you know, a lot of progress has been made, and we can't pretend as if no progress has been made, but we have to fix that problem so that we get to a situation in which we're looking at others as brothers and sisters with the eyes of faith rather than as people whose skin color somehow separates them from anything short of full Christ-like love. But then there are other aspects of this, too. I mean, the, the violence on in the profiling that takes place. Um, with regard to blacks in our country is real. Mm -hmm. Some people may exaggerate the extent of that, but it's real, and we can't deny it. And we can't keep saying that, you know, cops kill more non-blacks than blacks in the country. If police officers are unjustly treating any citizen, it should make every citizen step up and say that shouldn't be happening. And, you know, we, we can't deny that blacks suffer a lot from stereotypes as well as from discrimination in Profiling practices. Anybody who listens to Senator Scott from South Carolina will know that even this incredibly distinguished man who served our country in so many ways, he gets pulled over because he's driving a nice car in a nice neighborhood, not even thinking that he's a U.S. senator, or he's stopped by certain guards at the Capitol. So that's the second issue we have to face. The third issue that we can't duck is the way that our joint hatred of racism and violence that blacks have suffered can't be used as an excuse for other agendas. Mm-hmm. The agenda of terrible destruction and intimidation that's burning our cities and vandalizing the property of so many innocent people. But then also, when you look at the Black Lives Matters movement, that has a lot of other things other than racism. It's pushing redefinition of uh, who the human person is. It's pushing for abortion. It's pushing for lots of things that when you look at them, rather than helping black Americans, are actually going to hurt black families and hurt black Americans and white Americans and everybody else. And so, like, we we need to keep all of these in context. Father, one of the things that the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't push, it seems to me, is hope and reconciliation uh, for the future. Right before we have our interview now, I had Alvida King on. She's the niece of Martin Luther King Jr. And he was uh, a, a beautiful pastor who was really able to communicate the ideas of the gospel that, that Jesus gave us of, of confronting hate with love. And I feel that the Black Lives Movement could learn from from the beautiful uh, example of Martin Luther King Jr. It's very important for a movement to achieve goals without blowing everything else up. To look at the good that's in other people, to call on that good so that our whole country can get better. When people start 
with a chip not only on their shoulders, but in their heads and in mm-hmm. every part of their body. And what they want to do to achieve justice is to respond to injustice with other injustices. Then that's never going to bring about what they seek. Inequality is never adva- is never remedied by other forms of inequality. And so we've seen certain injustices and certain inequality as a result of the chaos of the last few weeks. And that what it, what it does is it builds resentment rather than promotes healing. So, for example, if our civil authorities are describing the coronavirus as something that we have to take very seriously, but then don't pay any attention when tens of thousands of uh, marchers come together, like mm-hmm. you, you need to really ask the question, do black lives really matter? And if they do, why would we be on the one hand saying you could catch this life-threatening disease when you're within six feet of each other, when you're not wearing masks and everything else, and then somehow exempt these huge marches from that type of medical advice? If black lives matter, we don't want blacks getting coronavirus. And we've noticed over the course of time, these last several months, that those in minority communities have suffered disproportionately from Mm -hmm. the coronavirus. So why would we be looking the other way when we're claiming as a culture to genuinely care about them? And, you know, when there are different sets of rules where protesters can assemble by the thousands with cops and mayors and civil officials in their (laughs) presence, but say that more than very small group can't fall to both needs in church and pray for God's help for this, that's just hypocritical and it's going to become productive to the ends of peace, harmony, and justice. And it seems to me it will create that kind of resentment that you spoke about. That's my fear, and we've seen that fear come about where, you know, I mean, there there's a lot of simmering concern. It hasn't been stated publicly by many because of the moment that we have and nobody wants to pour gasoline on a fire and there's some prudence there but there are some real concerns especially about the destruction that's happened and the people including civil leaders who have tried to justify the destruction of innocent people's property as a legitimate protest. I agree with President Obama's statement where he said, to some degree, our whole country was founded by protest against what was happening by Britain. But that protest didn't start by, you know, injuring innocent people's properties. It started with letters. It started with real advocacy. Eventually, unfortunately, it led to the Revolutionary War. But it doesn't have to go in that direction. And unfortunately, we just haven't had real leadership in saying, we agree with the ends that you're seeking, but the means can never be violent if we're seeking, if we're really seeking means. Those are some, frankly, communist strategies that we saw lead to a lot of bloodshed in the 20th century. And we certainly don't want to give room for those types of strategies in the 21st century if we want life good for African Americans and for every American. Father, in your piece, you refer to the looting that's been going on. And I think... When we watch videos of these protests that turn into riots and then have a component of looting, we want to distinguish between people who are, with a perfect correctness, asking, you know, very poignantly for the country to improve in policing and in race relations by their protest, and then other people who are taking advantage of the situation to simply loot and rob and hurt their fellow man. Here in New York, I saw that firsthand. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when I was walking back from early morning mass down by City Hall. It's about an hour walk away, but one of the things I've been doing during the coronavirus is getting more exercise walking places <laughs> rather than taking the subway and, and trying not to add some extra coronavirus pounds, frankly. Like and the rest of us. As I was coming back, I yeah, I, I turned I, I turned a corner onto Lafayette Street, and that's where I saw glass from one of these stores all over the sidewalk in thousands of shards. And then as I turned the corner, I saw every store more or less suffer, had suffered the same fate. There was graffiti everywhere. Cars had had their windshields smashed in and their side windows, and some of them had had paint um, graffitied all over the cars. And so there was a whole block in which almost every store was that way. And then the entire hour-long journey home, I saw every block, at least one store singled out that way or one car. So much ugly destruction. That wasn't even the worst in the city where buildings were burned down Mm -hmm. and cars were, were torn. Like, where was that coming from? That 
that was coming from certain elements that were trying to hijack uh, a movement uh, seeking real justice for Americans who have been treated unjustly in the past, trying to hijack that movement for other causes. So what did we see? We saw some organized crime elements there where they had these whole bicycles. There were various reports in the New York Times and New York Post about this, where they had a whole bunch of runners basically on bikes telling them where the cops were, letting them know just how much time they still had to lose. There were other getaway cars. There were scout cars coming, including in some very expensive automobiles earlier in the day to see the types of places that they would want to loot there at night. And unfortunately, our police officers were overwhelmed, and many of them just stayed away from these circumstances as so many people's hard-earned businesses were routed. Sometimes we can say, well, insurance will clearly pay for this. In many of these cases, the insurance companies won't pay. And so small business owners lost basically all of their inventory and then had the bill to be to, to repair the glass and and everything else that was there so like if we re- want real justice everybody has got to be against the hijacking of legitimate protests by elements trying to take advantage of them for their own selfish purposes and for destruction not constructive dialogue that's so true it's very sad to watch that and and know that people are losing their livelihoods after weeks of uh, putting up with the coronavirus lockdowns and wondering if they were going to be able to restart their American dream. Father, you mentioned the police, and I went to college in New York City. I went to Columbia, and I'm a minority. <laughs> and I, I have to tell you, I, I had a lot of interactions with police, and not, not from a criminal perspective, but when I lived in New York, and I found them always, the, the police in New York, extremely pleasant people, very warm and respectful. In fact, that's sort of been my experience all over the United States. I don't, I don't think I've ever had an, an ugly interaction with, with a policeman, only good interactions. When you speak to police in New York City, how do you find their spirits? So I've found them really frustrated, actually. Um, one of the legal reforms that I'm putting in quotations that, were, that was passed in Albany last year was basically to say you can't hold people overnight unless you get to really serious crimes. So crimes like the destruction of people's property and things like that, as long as it's not done with weapons and threats, you can't hold these people overnight. Um, you know, one of the first things that Mayor de Blasio bragged about was how many prisoners he set free because of coronavirus. And many of these have committed other crimes, not everybody. Some of them were in there for drug offenses and they're cured and they're uh, they're not going back to a life of crime, thanks be to God. But many were taking advantage of their freedom just to go back to their own habits, old habits that got them into jail. And so when I was talking to police officers, um, they were saying how frustrated they are because if they bust somebody for doing this type of activity, bring them down to the station and book them, they will be out by the morning Hmm. in order to be able to hit the streets for this to occur again. And they could be arrested a second time and they will be out in the morning because of Albany's um, so-called reforms that have made it so difficult to keep in jail awaiting um, the initial hearing. Those who have every intent of going back into the streets and continuing to do what they were originally arrested for. And so police officers are legitimately frustrated with that because no matter how hard they work, even risking their lives to try to end the violence on the streets, they know because of decisions made by lawmakers that they're not going to be able to keep these uh, lawbreakers off the streets. Any of us would be similarly frustrated in a situation like that. And it can lead sometimes to cynicism, which leads them to say, why should I be doing all of this if we're not going to be able to keep them from continuing to do this harm? And so, you know, certain changes need to be made to allow police officers better to do their jobs. The vast majority of police officers do their jobs and they're honorable men with integrity or really committed to protecting and serving. There are a few bad apples, like we saw in Minneapolis, and we've seen in other cases, who, for whatever reason, just don't take the dignity of those that they're arresting and who aren't creating problems seriously enough. That's one issue that all citizens need to confront. But at the same time, we need to respect 
those who put their lives on the line in order to be able to protect it because we all might be in a situation where we really need them and we need to equip them with the types of laws that can allow them to protect and serve us adequately. My feeling about police is that they take on for us the uh, tremendously difficult and dangerous situations. They they come to our aid when, when we're terrified. In New York City, I've been thinking after the terrorist attack on the towers <clears throat> on the World Trade Center, how the, the first responders, including so many police, were laid their lives uh, down for the people of New York. And I feel now they're being demonized. Yeah, no, listen, stereotyping and discrimination are just wrong. And many of the police officers are being stereotyped by the actions of Derek Chauvin and his colleagues in Minneapolis. That is just as unjust as the stereotyping of any minority community in the country. Stereotyping is wrong, and we shouldn't stereotype police officers any more than we should stereotype any other group of citizens. And Father, it's time for us to say goodbye, unfortunately. But on that point, I wonder if you could leave us with some words about how our Catholicism, our Christianity, but specifically our Catholicism, helps us when these when these things come up. When we look at each other, we recognize somebody willed into existence and loved by God. For us to treat anyone else with anything less than those eyes and hearts of love is just not worthy of somebody who's called a Christian. And so that that's where it begins with our own conversion to the extent that it's necessary and our own defense of the dignity of others. Then what it allows us to do is it, it gives us the vocabulary and it gives us the motivation to go on out in society as Jesus called and fulfill our trifold vocation. And we need at this time to live up to Christ's trifold calling for us to be salt, light, and leaven at a time our nation really needs Catholics to be Catholics to the full. Oh, well, thank you, Father. And I hope that our listeners like me are very inspired to be that leaven and, and those few people that can, can make a real difference and change things. If you would like to hear more from Father Roger Landry, you can always listen to his homilies here on Conversations with Consequences every week. He's so kind to give us that gift. And also at catholicpreaching.com. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. After the Easter season, Pentecost, and the feasts of the Holy Trinity and Corpus Christi, we return to the Gospels of Ordinary Time and pick up in the 10th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says to us paradoxically something very consoling, as well as a little disconcerting, before teaching us how the two go together. On the one hand, Jesus teaches us not to be afraid because our Father in Heaven loves us more than all the sparrows in the world and knows us intimately down to our last follicle of here. Fifteen times in the Gospel, in fact, Jesus tells us not to be afraid. And almost every time, He returns to the reason not to fear. Because our Father in Heaven, like any good Father whom we remember on Father's Day, will provide for us and protect us. In the Sermon on the Mount, He tells us not to worry about what we will eat or drink or wear, things we really need. Because the same Father who clothes the lilies of the fields knows what we need and will take care of us. He tells us today that he doesn't even want us to fear suffering and physical death. Because not even death can separate us from the Father's love. These words are even more important at a time in which so many are fearing the coronavirus, its consequences, the tenuous state of world stability, and various worrisome trends in culture, law, and politics. At the same time, Jesus tells us that there's one fear we should have. Do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This being who seeks to destroy us in hell is the devil, someone who would rather have us ignore his existence as many in our age and even sometimes in the church do. Out of love for us, Jesus tells us very directly that the devil exists, that he seeks to kill us, and that we should therefore have a healthy fear of him. St. Peter compares the devil to a type of wild beast. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling the world like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that someone he longs to consume is you or me. Jesus wants us to have a healthy fear of the evil one, I said, which involves two elements. First, we need to know how the devil seeks to attack us. He has no power over us unless we give him that power. 
He can't kill our soul unless we become his accomplice and allow our soul to be killed through mortal sin, which separates our soul from the source of life, who is God. The way the father of lies seeks to accomplish this spiritual-assisted suicide is by getting us to succumb to one of his lies, just as he did with Eve and Adam in the garden. A healthy fear of the devil involves no paranoia, but a sane vigilance against his lies and against all his temptations to induce us to sin. Second, once we know that and how he's out to get us, we have to know what remedy there is to defeat his attempt to defeat us together forever. That remedy is a deep trust in God that expresses itself in saying yes to God in everything. The evil one got Adam and Eve to sin first by getting them to distrust God and his promises, and then to do what God told them not to do. Therefore, the antidote to the devil's machinations is to accentuate the opposite of what the devil wants to achieve. If our best defense is a good offense, we need to trust in God and seek to do his will in everything. If we trust in the Father enough to say yes to him and no to the devil, to base our lives on the truth incarnate rather than on the father of lies, then we don't need to fear the devil any more than Jesus did. Jesus is the stronger man whom he tells us in St. Luke's Gospel has attacked and overpowered the devil, taken away his armor, and divided his spoils. If we stick fully with the Lord, that stronger man, if we love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we have nothing to fear. That's why Jesus' statements in the gospel today are a paradox and not a contradiction. It's only when we're not totally gods that we have to fear. Because the devil is constantly at the gate waiting for us to echo his no to God so that he might seduce us away from God for all eternity. We could spend a lot of time discussing how the devil tries to win individual battles with particular men and women. He tries to find a particular vulnerability, whether it be pride or greed or lust or comfort-seeking or a desire for control, and tries to manipulate it to get us to distrust God and choose against him. What I'd like to focus, however, on is the devil's global strategy with us, which is directly opposed to God's plans. God's plans for us in response to his gift of salvation involves two simple related elements, discipleship and apostolate, our personal holiness and fidelity on the one hand, and our becoming God's instruments to bring others to holiness and fidelity on the other. Devil's strategy involves trying to oppose these two elements, either by getting us not to pay sufficient attention to them or by trying to frighten us away from acting on them. With regard to personal holiness, he tries to get us to think that God doesn't want us to be holy, just good. Or he tries to get us to fear the consequences of holiness, that others will treat us as holier than thou and draw away from us. Or we'll even lose part of ourselves. We won't recognize ourselves if we give up our vices. Jesus helps us to see that that's all a lie. Likewise, with regard to our apostolate, he gets us to think that we're unqualified to share the faith with others, or that if we do, we'll suffer for it, we'll lose family members and friends, we may even lose our jobs and esteem and reputation. These are fears that he tries to raise up in us in order to get us to do exactly the opposite of what God calls us to do. If we, of course, preach the gospel, we may suffer for it, just as those before us have. That's why Jesus tells us not to fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. He wants to fill us with his courage. Courage isn't the absence of fear, but the capacity to do the right thing despite our fear. We have no greater example in this than the Lord himself. He prayed in the garden that the cup of suffering might be taken away, but finished his prayer by entrusting himself once again to the Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And this once again is in everything Jesus tells us to follow me. To defeat the devil, the greatest help we have is Jesus himself in the Eucharist. When we receive within the conqueror of sin and death, the vanquisher of the devil, we are helped in our pursuit of holiness and in spreading the gospel of love. That's why the devil hates the Eucharist and tries to do whatever he can to keep us away from Jesus there. And if he can't keep us away, then to go to Mass routinely or to try to receive Jesus in a state of sin. The best way, therefore, to be equipped to withstand the devil's onslaught is to receive the Lord Jesus with ever greater fervor, to respond to him with greater zeal and fidelity. Each time we receive Jesus well in the Eucharist, and I hope we all can this Sunday, we share in his victory over the devil and are strengthened with courage to carry that victory out to others. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 